Is that not a lot going on in that chapter? It's kind of like chapters like this. You don't ever hear preached on because everybody wants to skip over them. <laughs> it's really a depressing passage. Um, you know, you, re- you read all that they've gone through and the sadness that's to it and the destruction and all this, but it's one of those chapters in all honesty, like I, I love the honesty of it. You know, like if, 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 if the Bible was made up and, and, and a man had wrote it, you know, it might be sugarcoated. You might leave only the good stuff in and, and make it a happy book. But there's there's no candy-coated history in Scripture. It says it just like it is. It portrays it just like it is. And and it kind of reminds me of, like, you, you know any, like, diehard, you know, Americans like Danny? If you didn't know anybody else, you should at least know Danny on that, right? Like, not not that he falls into this example, but it reminds me, like, a lot of those people that are like that, they also believe on the flip side, like you can never say anything negative about the history of America. But it's not necessarily true. You know, you can't change and sugarcoat history. History is what it is. It happened. And I love the fact of, you know, as much as these and, and maybe those nationalists or whatever you would call them, patriots, you know, that, that feel that way. Maybe they've never really checked out like scripture. Scripture doesn't degrade God by telling what happened in history. It doesn't ruin God's plan. It does, you know, all the warts and all the biographies that. Scripture adds to, you know, with each of these kings and, and each of these people, and it's just an honest assessment of the performance that they did, uh, their life, their character, you know, and, and in doing so, I just want to make sure you understand, like, they're not stopping God's work, you know, they're, they're not breaking God's covenant as far as his side, they're not stopping God's purposes, uh, they're not, you know, changing and not being his people anymore, or, or, or nothing like, it's just history, it happened. You know, it's no different than like if a passage talks about a man having 25 wives and people want to take it and be like, oh, man, that means I can have multiple. No, it's history, you moron. And it's the wrong part of history. Uh, you, you know, so so understand that um, just because it's history doesn't make it right. Um, and there's something to be said about that, that aspect. And, and maybe some of our greatest lessons should actually and could actually come from chapters like this where there is drastic failure. And there is a lot of mess ups and there is a lot of misunderstandings and there is a lot of opportunity for us to to learn from. So I, th- I think chapters like this are written so that we can learn from them. And maybe even before we begin to learn from them, we need to do the same thing that, that this chapter does. Maybe we need to give an honest assessment of ourselves in order to start that process. You know, so maybe just just a couple seconds. Think about like how how is my walk going? Like what would be written and recorded in history about me? I often think sometimes when I do funerals and I meet with the family and I think that story time is like some of the, the most vital things, one to healing and one doing justice to, to one's life. But I often wonder, like, what would be said if I was to die tomorrow? You know, I've ha- had that thought, you know, my own, on the in the road, that probably statistics of accidents or, you know, on a motorcycle or or just, just any old accident. You know, somebody go crazy. And, and unfortunately, in the, the current world we live in, bad things happen in people's lives and sooner Sooner than it should. What would happen if I get a disease and, and it's not one the Lord chooses to heal me from and I do die from it? You know what? What would be remembered and what would be written about me? And would it be something, you know, could could, could these kings sit back and be like, yeah, that's what I did. I think a lot of them would be depressed, would be disappointed. And, yeah, I know, like after, you know, you went to sleep, you know, in, in the earth and all you think, well, I don't really care about that. Do, do you really not care about it? 
Is it really the way you'd like to walk around the kingdom forever, you know, contemplating what could have been, what should have been, what might have been? The the title is Cowardly Man and Redemptive God. And and it's so fit. It didn't even I, Wilson thought of it just so you guys give credit to where credit is due. It's just sort of fitting a fitting title for this chapter because the very first thing that that I noticed that started this whole thing is is the standards get changed for the people of God. And when we change the standards of or we lower the standards from what God wanted, we ought to it ought not surprise us that bad things are, are going to come. And, and as soon as Wilson said it, I thought, man, you got to be a coward to lower the standards. Because a coward is somebody that thinks they can't live up to the standards. A coward is somebody that's afraid to try to live up to the standards. A coward is somebody that's afraid to even put forth the effort to raise the bar for themselves so they can be the very best that God wants them to be and do the things that God wants them to do. So when you're a coward, you say, man, let's let's just lower the standards. And, and here's what I mean by that. Let's jump into this book that Joe just did a much better job of pronouncing words than I will ever do. So I'll probably just skip over all the hard words like I normally do. You jump into this chapter 14 and you see verse 3. It says he did what was right in Yahweh's sight. And you're like, yes, finally. And the stupid commas there, though. You got to hate commas when there's a but after them, right? Because that means like it, like you got a good thing, but the bad thing comes. And it says, but. Not like his ancestor, David, he did everything like his father, Joash, had done. In layman's terms, you could actually write it down this way. What he's saying is, this guy did everything that his dad did that fulfilled what the Lord wanted, but he didn't have a heart after God like his great, 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 great granddaddy David had. And I don't know about you, but that'd be a depressing sentence to be written about me. You did something like somebody, but you didn't have a heart after God. Like you weren't chasing after the things that, that he wanted. And even in his, his, his initial reactions, man, check out, check out five and six and, and what he does. It's such, such a positive start, such a, such an awesome beginning. As soon as the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he's, he's just now become king. And the first thing he does, he says, I'm going to kill those servants that killed my daddy. I'm, I'm going to avenge. My dad, and, and he, you're thinking, man, that's that's the good part. No, the good part is verse six. And like for me and Cliff, we're probably thinking verse five is the good thing, to be honest. But the good part as a pastor, I'm supposed to tell you, is verse six. However, he didn't put the children of the of the killers to death. And even that's not like that's a questionable thing, like good, bad, whatever. They could come back and get him. Maybe they're the people at the end of the chapter that that do get him. But it says he was doing this because it's written in the book of the law. This is the first time we have a corrupt king following God's law. So it's a good thing. It's a great thing. He's showing restraint. It's it's a great statement to start off the very first act he's going to do as a king. It's a positive outlook. He's starting really well. But any of you ever learned to, to ride a bicycle? I hope that connects with everybody. If your hand is not up, God bless your soul. You should just come over to the house and we should just learn how to ride bicycles all day, right? I hope there's no adults that don't know how to, how to ride a bike. When you first learn a bicycle, what part's the easiest? That's the easiest? That sounds like a horrible start. <laughs> the easiest is that initial roll, isn't it? Because think about it. One of two things happens on the initial roll. If you live out in the country and you don't have hills and, and you're not in that neighborhood 
sloped, uh, sloped driveway, you, you've got a dad or a mom or somebody right beside you that's holding the seat and pushing. Right? So that's an easy, smooth start. Now, if, if you live, I remember we, we went into our old neighborhood yesterday dropping the kids off at Caroline's house. And we lived on that very first street. So, like, as I drove by, I looked over there. And I, I could literally picture some of the first time our kids learned to ride bikes. And, and, and you know, one of them was on the, the little non-pedal bike. So they would, they would get at the top of the driveway and just pick their feet up and roll down the hill. And it was great, except for on the opposite side of the driveway, after they crossed the road, if a car wasn't coming to hit them, uh, there's there's mailboxes. So they had to learn to kind of bob and weave to, to miss the mailboxes and shoot into the neighbor's yard across the street. And, and, and you know, so, so going down the hill in that initial start is easy. Where skill has to take place is when you avoid the crash. Right. So when you're when you're avoiding the, the crash, because you don't have all the skills to avoid the crash yet. You don't have all the skills of, of putting the foot down and knowing that's going to keep you up and, and just leaning the bike or, or turning the bike or whatever. happened. And I think that's the same thing that's happening with this king, man. He's got a great start. He's rolling downhill, but he doesn't have the skills yet to do what has to be done at the next level. And, and what I mean by that is this. Here's the problem. You know, with this guy, and here's the problem with a lot of us sometimes. Problem one, the standard gets lowered. The standard gets lowered. Rather than it get, you know, we ought to be people who are raising the standard. I remember Paxson, it, it was almost four, not quite yet, and, and he wanted to ride that bike. And, and we were living in the neighborhood, and he had done that pedal or non-pedal bike, you know, go, going down the driveway so many times. And so we got him a bike, and, and he looks at these training wheels. He's like, I don't, I don't want those things. On there, and he argued with me about them. And I said, son, you have to have training wheels or you'll fall, which, you know, you could argue is, is a bad principle to teach him in to begin with, but not to get into those physics. So we got into a little debate. And, of course, the almost four-year-old wins the debate. So I go get a wrench, and I take off these training wheels. And I said, hey, when you fall and you bust your little tail, don't you come whining back to me. We got tough love at our house, all right? Like, it's train, we're raising the bar. Right. So, so, so I threw him on that thing and, and it wasn't even no rundown. I still didn't run even back then. And, and I gave him that good shove and, and he was gone. We have it on video and Crystal said, you better catch him. And he was just all the way down the end of the thing. Why? Because he raised the standard from what dad thought the standard should be. Why do we want to lower the standard for our children? More so, why do we want to lower the standard for the way we're raising them and the spiritual way we're raising them? What I mean by that is this. Read what it said in, in, in 3 and 4. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, but not as his father David had done. He followed the example of his father, Joash. Is it not easier to pick somebody in your family line that's easier to follow? You know what I'm saying? Like, what if Marsha's bar is here, and Danny's grateful that his uncle's here because his bar's down here? Right? And it's easy to live to this bar. When you've been trying to live to this bar for so long, right? But don't we do that sometimes? We, we, we get excited about, oh, I'm the first one in my family to do dot, dot, dot. Well, my God, if the bar's way down there, of course you're the first one to do it. Nobody's raised the bar in your family. And, and the problem with this guy is he's been okay following his dad's thing, and he forgot about his great-great-grandfather's example. It was in verse 4, he even tells us what he did. The high places, however, were still not removed. You think God gets tired of commanding the writer of scripture to write that sentence? I get tired of reading it, to be quite honest with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, how many times can you read the sentence, the high places were still not removed? The high places were still not removed. And then it hit me. Then it hit me. All kidding aside, please ask yourself this this morning. Don't shout it out loud. 
Oh, are we to continue reading this verse because you're not removing the high places in your own lives? I mean, is that what it is? Like we, we continue to read it and we agree. We're like, yeah, preach it, pastor. Like that works. Amen. Remove them. But you go back home and you got all the high places still set up at your house. You got all the high places still set up in your life. Remember, one of the easiest ways we illustrated what a high place was, was anything that distracted them from true, genuine worship of God. What is it in your life that's distracting you from true, genuine worship of God? When it, when it lists Joash, man, we, 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 we got to look at, and look at history and check it out. You guys should remember because it's only been a couple weeks. Joash was a king that was never even supposed to be. He, he was a guy where, thank God we didn't have Mother's Day a couple weeks ago, right? He, he was a guy where the rage of his grandmother was killing all the kids so that there was nobody left to challenge her. And then, here, I guess we will have a little bit of Mother's Day stuff. But then Joash's aunt stepped up and protected him. Aren't we glad for mamas who have stepped up when other mamas don't do what they're supposed to do? Aren't we glad for women, and, and you men too that have to do it sometimes, who step up and fill in the place when other people aren't? Especially for, for, for children? And, and then we know that he was at least seven when he got his rule. I think he was older, but we'll say at least seven to keep it fair with Scripture lining up. During his reign, he repairs the temple, which is so good and so great. But at the end of Joash's life, what did we read? He made a treaty with Hazael, king of Aram. Remember, he forgot about the arrows and he focused on the enemy, Aram. And in doing so, he used money from the temple treasury to pay for the treaty. How evil and corrupt do you have to be to start taking God's money and pay off for your safety? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. It's almost like you could say it this way. He's taking God's money and setting himself up for comfort. Because when you're safe, you're comfortable, right? Now, I just want you to think. How many organizations, churches, nonprofits, everything else, not all of them, but unfortunately in today's world, man, their leaders are sitting really comfortable, aren't they? Would you say almost too comfortable? Right? Now, I'm not saying all. I'm just saying like is we've lowered the standard. We've lowered the standard and we've made it okay to do so. Later in his life, Joash, he, he turns from God and God punishes him at the end. And my point is just looking back at him as we remember his beginning because it was awesome. God saved him, right? We remember his raising because it was cool. That lady just happened to be married to a priest and he was raised right. We remember him fixing the temple. But I bet a lot of us, except for the fact that we just studied it a couple of weeks ago, we wouldn't remember that he turned from the Lord in his later years. We, we would have forgotten that. And here we have his son, Amaziah, doing right, but only right in accordance with the standard that's already been lowered. Stop lowering the standard. He didn't do right by the standard that was set by his great grandfather, David, a man who was after God's heart. And in those high places, the places that keep distracting us, he allowed them to still stand. Let's, let's set some real life examples with this. I jotted down a couple and, and I want you guys to respond with what I mean by them. OK, so this is interactive. I, I want to hear some of what is let's go standard of life first. Right. When we change the standard. My dad was a great provider. Even though he was never home. What do I really mean? He's a <laughs> this is not about my dad. My dad is still around. <laughs> and why would he be a loser if he provided? <laughs> Let's think about the sentence. Don't you? I'm trying to think any deeper than you got to. My dad was a great provider, though he was never around. What am I really saying? I got what I wanted, but I had no upbringing. Why? Because the daddy ain't there. Nobody's there to teach me. 
Am I right? All right, what about this one? My mom really loved me, but she didn't know. I, these are not about my family, by the way. I didn't know y'all guys. I didn't know y'all were going to take it that way, man. Huh? My mom really loved me, but she didn't know how to say it. These are phrases I've heard people say. If my love language was gifts, then yeah. All that means is she provided. Well, what else would you take it, though? If my love language was quality time, what am I saying? I think she loved me, but I didn't have no time with her. Right? If my love language was physical touch, I think she loved me, but she never hugged me. She never held my hand. Right? So think about what these verses, what we really say when we say is that we've heard people say that, right? So and so loved me, they just don't know how to say it. I, I hear knuckleheaded, abused wives say it all the time. And I, I use that phrase because I don't know. I, I just want to beat their husbands to a pulp. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, just being honest. How about this one? This is not about me either. Our minister's a great preacher, but we've never talked. Let's get real on them. What are we saying? What do we say? All we're saying is that guy, this is how you know it's not about me. We're saying that guy can get up there and give an awesome speech. But we don't know how he lives his life for real because we never hang out. Now, is that really the definition of pastor then? Huh? Or is that just speaker? I can't say words, so thank God for failing in that category, right? You just you just know with each of these phrases that something's missing. Now let's take it take it another step. Because this is about application, right? Take another step. What about the spiritual standard examples? Church is my priority. I go when I can. <laughs> Don't laugh. Think about what it says. Doesn't sound like a priority, does it? Church is my priority until something more important comes up. The beach. Vacation. And not to say you can't have church and vacation. With technology now, you should never miss church. You know what I'm saying? Like you got no excuses anymore. But think about it. Ah, I want to sleep in. Ah, I just don't feel like it. Ah, I want to stay out the late before. Ah, I got to go hunting. Ah, I got to go fishing. Ah, what is it? What is it? Excuses. All right, how about this one? I want to have a close walk with God, but finding hard, time for him is hard. What are we really saying? I'm lazy. I don't care about a relationship with God. That's what you're actually saying. Don't tell me you want to have a relationship with somebody, but you can't have time to be with them. You wouldn't be married right now if that was the case. Or you wouldn't be happily married. Some of y'all ain't happily married because that's the case. Right? Think about it. If you care about a person, you make time to be with them. If not, it's the same thing with God. If you really want to have a close walk with God, you find time to be with them. How about this? The Bible is really important, ah, but I didn't get to read it this week. Or some of us say, I believe everything that's in the Bible, but I, I had never did a Bible study on my own. You laugh. I'm so proud of our, like, I can't tell you guys how proud. I know y'all think I'm like bragging on them and I am. So I'm glad you think that. I'm so proud of like our men's group, man. We got dudes leading Bible studies that ain't never led a Bible study in their life, but willing to just take the plunge and do it. You know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're diving into scripture and they're checking things out. We got people whose weak it isn't is, it isn't is to me. I don't know. You, like I said, my pastor is not a good speaker, so he must walk close with us. That's all we got for us, right? We got people who it isn't even their week to lead, yet they're studying stuff and calling me and sending me messages. Hey, what, what do you think? That, I got to look back at my thing. I'm like, boy, it's not your week to lead. And they're like, oh, I know. Amen, right? That's awesome, guys. If any of you men who haven't done that, you just got called out. <laughs> Raise the bar. Raise the bar. But but is that not in itself part of raising the bar, guys? Our Wednesday night thing? Well, I mean, I'm being, I'm being dead honest. 
the dead serious. I grew up in church my whole life. Thanks to a mom and dad, even when I was an evil little brat, corrupted, and, and everything else wrong about me, they still made sure my butt had to be in church on a Sunday morning. Right? I've never been part of a group where we force people, and I don't I use force loosely. Nobody's tied them up. We ask for volunteers. But where, where random people start leading Bible studies? Have you ever? Nobody? That, I mean, that's an open question. Maybe you guys have, and that's awesome. None of us? How's this little old pokey-doke church in Givens going to be the front series? Going to be the first church that you've been part of where we raise the bar and actually get people to lead Bible studies? I mean, that's amen for us, but that's horrible for the church. I'm serious, guys. I, 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 man, I feel good about it. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm like, why in the world is this the first time? Why? What in the world are we missing? Why? Because we lower the bar. We're content with the bar down there because it's easy to step over. Scripture hasn't called you to lower the bar. It raises the bar, matter of fact. Right? It, does not Jesus' ministry, I hate to get off on this, man, but it's so important. Does not Jesus' ministry mimic raising the bar? What did he tell them? Scripture told you not to go sleep with that other woman. You know what I say? You better not even look at her and think about it. That's raising the bar, man. And I think that the same thing goes for because envy goes both ways, right? Just because it, it told the man that don't think you don't go for you women, right? When you look at somebody else's husband, like, I wish my husband did that. You want him to do it? Tell him. I'm serious. We're idiots. We don't know unless you tell us what you want. And quit stopping. <laughs> Stop with that thing of I want you to know what I want. We don't know what you want. Haley just, uh, oh, man, what was it? Wednesday, I think? She couldn't make up her mind or something. And, <laughs> this is no lie. Christian brother walks up to me and says, she's becoming a woman. <laughs> Isn't that true? We can't read y'all's minds <laughs> because y'all's minds are so much more everywhere than ours is, right? That's why we got boxes. Remember that study, huh? Your Bible's important. Spend time in it. You, you should be preparing to let. You know, I'll be honest with you guys. I, and, and this is this is something I had to learn recently. I got off on just studying my Bible to prepare a sermon for you guys. That's bad. So if you're a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, that's horrible, right? That's because that's not your calling. So so like I neglected my. Th- so now I got to like have bookmarks in different spots because I got to have my personal reading. Then I got to have my sermon prep reading, and then I, I like to study from a Wednesday, even though I'm not leaving too. So it's like you don't understand like that. That's three different kind of things. And so you're like, man, that's entirely too much scripture. Well, then the Bible's not important to you. So don't use the phrase, Bible's important to me, but. Huh? Is it not just when you hear these phrases, like something's missing? That's my point. Something's missing when we say these things, right? So, so, so from the heart, ask yourself, have I changed the standard because I'm a coward to have the bar raised? You know, they, I thought I'd never use a quote from the movie The Replacements. But in the movie, The Replacements, Danny's like, you got me, movie, boom, right? In the movie, The Replacements, though, the, the coach tells this quarterback this. He says, winners want the ball at the end of the game. Now, what that means by that is that a winner is willing to take the chance to do whatever needs to be done to get across the bar that's up here. The coward, the coward don't want the bar because then, or don't want the ball because then if it fails, what happens? 
It's all on you. But if you, I tell my boys this all the time, as corny as it is, here's my dad thing for today, right? If you push your limit, you can raise your limit. But if you never push it, it ain't never going to be raised. Am I right? And that goes with every aspect of life, man. Every aspect of life. What in the world are they missing out? What, why are they, here, here's what they end up with. The, the result when we, when we do this with low standard, we end up with mediocrity. Just this morning, we were having breakfast for, for, for Mother's Day with my mom, and, and she was talking about, like, students, when they get to remake a test up, which we never got to do, by the way. So you guys are so spoiled. Like, if we got a failed grade, we went home and dad beat our butts, and we made a better grade on the next one. Like, you guys, you get a second chance. But what she would say, like, during the second chance, she would have kids who made a 95 ask if they can redo it, too. Me, I'm like, 95, thank God. I ain't, never, ain't no way, dog. Right? But these kids are raising the standard. They're like, I got five more points I can get. I, I can raise. We've got to raise the bar, not just in grades, but in everything in life. Right. <coughs> God has given us his fullness so that we can enjoy life, our relationship with him and be excited about it. But too often we settle for less. If you were to rate, if you were to rate your, your, your walk with Christ, not your relationship, not your he loves you, you love him kind of thing. But but just your, your walk itself with with where you have the bar. Are you happy with OK? Or, I'm sorry, I should start with bad. Are you happy with bad? Okay. Good enough. Good. Or are you striving for greatness? I, I think a lot of times, man, we're, we're, we're good enough. Oh, it's good enough. Oh, it's good enough. Now, good enough's okay on certain things, but not, not in our spiritual world with God, man, right? Here's the second problem. Second problem is this in this chapter. He's got an overinflated self-importance. Look, look, look at seven and eight. God gives Amaziah the win against the Edomites, right? Edomites. They've been enemies for centuries, yet this guy is able to get them. And in the middle of, and I guess you can say it this way, in the middle of mediocrity, sometimes something great happens. And then you're stuck with a choice. Am I going to let that something great come between me and my relationship with God? Or am I going to go for it? He, he listened to the right source and great things took place. Here's what really happens. All of a sudden he thinks he can take on the world. Look at I'm going to read seven, I'm going to brief over seven through ten just to remind us to get where we're at, right? So Amaziah, he kills 10,000 Edomites. And because he killed 10,000 of them, in verse eight, he sent messengers, um, this other king, the, the son of Jehu, and he said, hey, come, let's meet face to face. Now he, come meet, let's meet face to face. He's not saying let's have tea. He's not saying let's have some coffee, let's meet for lunch and talk about things. He's saying like, let's get it on, right? He's saying, let's get close enough where I can stab you and you can stab me. But it says, uh, King Joash of Israel, he sent word to the king and he, he gave him this, this like, this little picture thing that Thistle in Lebanon once sent a message, you know, saying, give your daughter to your son as your wife. And then a wild animal in Lebanon passed by and trampled this thistle and, and you have indeed def- it, uh, defeated Edom and you have become overconfident. Enjoy your glory and stay at home. What's he really saying? You're about to bite off more than you can chew. Right? Like you got your victory. Enjoy it. Be glad. But stay where you at, because if you cross this line, it ain't going to be good. Right. Enjoy your glory. Stay at home. Why would you stir up more trouble for yourself? But this is us sometimes like we get a little victory and we want to stir up more trouble than we were supposed to. Now, what, what I love for this, and you guess you can say it this way. As soon as something goes right for us, and this is what his daddy did, too. We turn from God and we rely on our own logic. You ever notice that soon as things start going well for us, we forget about what God wants. We go back to what we want. That's a big challenge. And it's easy for ourselves to, to, to miss out on this. You can say it this way. 
Here's what I had written down when we first saw it. We see an aspiration unchecked by the will of God that leads to a strategy that begins a ripple effect of disaster for these people. And I think that's the same thing for us. We have an aspiration that goes unchecked. Aspiration is not the bad thing. But when it's unchecked by the will of God, it leads to a ripple effect. We get a little more detail, 2 Chronicles 25, which I want to look at so we can fill in some of the gaps. Some of you studiers write it down so you can check it out more in depth. 2 Chronicles 25, it tells us some, some, some stuff. And here's the bad. Amaziah, first of all, he gathers all these people together. And he starts counting numbers. Now, every time in Scripture a king starts gathering people and counting numbers, what's the result? War, but what's the other result after the war? De- defeat. They get their little butts beat every time. You ever notice that? Like when they, when they worry about their own numbers, and I think what Scripture's telling us then is, is they start trusting in the wrong thing rather than trusting in God, and, and it leads to destruction. The whole point is this, and this comes from Psalm 20, verse 7. The king's supposed to trust not in chariots and horses and fighting men, but trusting God. That's where our trust is, is supposed to be. So, so there's a trust issue, and here's what he does. He sits around, and he's like, man, I got 300,000. We get our numbers from 2 Chronicles 25. I got 300,000 fighting men. That's not quite enough to win, but that's, that's pretty close. I can hire 100,000 more from Israel. It's bad when you start hiring from your enemy, by the way, right? Start dealing with your enemy and hiring from them. 100,000 from them, and, and I can take this place. I can take it all. And God in his kindness, this is why it's cowardly man, but a redemptive God. God in his kindness for no apparent reason whatsoever other than his grace and mercy sends this prophet. Unnamed prophet, we don't even get his name. And in verse twenty, or chapter 25 of Chronicles, verse 7, it says a man of God came to him. Don't do it, don't do it. Don't make an alliance with Israel. If you make an alliance with Israel and these soldiers you take into battle, you're going to lose. Verse 8, even if you go and you fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or overthrow. Flat out saying, man, this, this is not about the way you should be doing it. This is what, what God wants. So Amaziah says this. He goes, what about the, the hundred talents I've already paid these guys? Such a business guy, right? Is that not us sometime? Like we try to justify something because we're already invested into it. There's a phrase in the business world called cut your losses. Sometimes the best thing you can do is cut your losses and get away from something. So, But this guy, he, he's no different than we would be. He goes, what about the hundred talents that I paid each of these guys? And the man of God, I love this reply. He says, Yahweh can give you much more than that. He didn't miss a beat. He's like, what, hundred talents per soldier? Pocket change, man. You know what God can do? If you would just surrender this right? Now, now here, here, here's... Here's the fall, but the obedience that comes. So he's still like, he's, he's a little bit more than good enough right now, right? He's learning. He worries what he does. He, he dismisses those troops. 100,000 troops, sends them back home, gives them their money. But here's what you need to understand. 100,000 talents for a mercenary soldier is like pocket change. So when you study Chronicles and a little bit deeper into some other areas, what you realize is this. Those guys weren't just coming to fight for the 100 talents. They were coming to fight for the plunder they got to take after the war. And that was part of their agreement. So when you send somebody home who's got dressed up for battle and thought they was going to walk away with a lot of stuff, and they only get that bare. See, they had the standard still raised. They didn't lower their standard. They knew what they wanted. They were going to go after it. But when you only give them the bare minimum, they didn't think it was good enough. So this becomes a real big problem. And not to, well, I guess I do need to go ahead and say this since we're trying to do two chapters, right? 
as not two chapters in Kings, it's okay, calm down, you'll make it to lunch on time. Two chapters, Chronicles 25 and Kings 14, right? But as, as we see this big problem later, what happens is these 100,000 soldiers, when they leave, where do they go? Any of you know the story? They swing right on by homeboys on territory, and they get the plunder that they were promised. And they beat the snot out of his own people and take stuff. Now, here's where you really got to start thinking and ask yourself this. Because we said something, well, I said something last time on Facebook. That when we listen to God, the results are worth it. Right? But do you believe that? And are you okay with that? Then the, the, when the results aren't your results. I, w- I want to make sure we understand this. Because what? He listens to the guy about going to war and he wins. He beats 10,000. That's awesome, right? Wipes the floor with him. It's great. Wonderful victory. But he also listens to God. Now, he set himself up for this failure. So this is not like just God. OK, but but he set himself up by bringing in the enemy. And God said, man, if, if the enemy's going to fight, you're going to lose. I don't care what the numbers are. Send them home. Do you not think God knew where those hundred thousand soldiers were going? But he was obedient to win the war, the battle. But yet trouble came at home. Your actions have consequences. Right. Always. And unfortunately, your actions don't just affect you, they affect others. There's a big lesson right there. Verse 7 tells us what happened as he sat on the throne and he defeated uh, 10,000 of these guys in this valley. They celebrate this victory. Things go well. It's a beautiful picture of what happens when we obey God and listen to God's people. So, so you can write it this way. He had to hear so that he could listen, so that he could obey, so that he got results. G- uh, Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27, talks about the, the building of the foundation. At the very beginning, what does it say? Therefore, everyone who hears these words and acts on them. So it's not just hearing. Listening is when you hear and act. Right? So it says everyone who listens to these words, right? They'll be like the man who who built his house on on the rock. The storm came and the house stood strong because he listened. He heard and obeyed. But there was this other guy who only heard and didn't obey. So he didn't listen. He just heard. We, we got a bad problem sometimes when we talk to people where we hear, but we don't listen. Right. And, and, and that guy, he built his house still on the sand and the storm came and he, and he took it out. The, the point of Jesus' story is this. The difference is one listened and one didn't. And, and the consequences were obvious. Right. So when we hear God speaking, we got to choose whether we're going to listen or not. Back to Chronicles 25, 14 through 15. Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites. He brought back the gods of the people of Seir. He set them up on his own as his own gods, bowed down to them and burned sacrifices to them. Is that not just a I don't know about you guys, but do you picture the scene how horrible this sounds? Let me let me throw it real life for you. Real life would be like this right here. Like you're at the hospital and, and, and things ain't going well for whoever you went to visit. And you pray and some miracle comes out. And but then you go home and go back to doing things your own way. Right. Is that giving God the respect and the thankfulness that he's worthy of? No, don't get me wrong. You, you're okay either way with genuine faith, but, but look at what they did. So God wipes the floor with them, and what does he do? He starts collecting the gods from this enemy that he just defeated, and he takes them back home and worships them. So 15 tells us, the anger of Yahweh burned against him, and he sent a prophet to talk to him one more time. Why do you consult these people's gods, which could not save their own people? I love this guy's response, right? While he was still speaking, the king said, have we even asked you to come in here and, and, and talk to me? You don't like hearing what's true sometime, right? 
But listen to this guy. This, this guy took other gods. He's worshiping them back at home. This prophet comes in and he goes, man, you're, you're worshiping gods. We just defeat. And I think where he's related is like, and sometimes, not this is right, but sometimes we can understand the course of Israel's history, why they may have wanted to start worshiping other gods. They got beat by them. So the, the theory in their mindset, same thing with some of our tribes today, is, oh, that God must be better than this God. That God is more powerful than, than this God. Remember the, the God of the mountain idea that we had many chapters ago and, and all that going. But this guy, this guy's taking defeated gods back. It makes no sense at all. And so worshiping him, and God gets mad at him. So he sends somebody, yet again, in God's grace and God's mercy, God's redemptiveness. He sends somebody to ask him, why are, why are you doing this? You ever had a brother or sister, maybe in the Holy Spirit, just that, why are you doing this? What in the world are you doing? And have you responded like this guy? Who, who asked you to advise me? Right? A good friend's going to advise you when it ain't right. And you need to take it that way. Rather than, who are you to be telling me what to do? Bad decisions always cause difficulty, right? So 14 through 16, this idolatry revealed. 16, he starts worshiping the false gods. This guy comes on the scene and says, what in the world? This makes no sense. So then the 16 says, so the prophet stopped, but he said this. <laughs> you, you picture these guys arguing. I don't know about you guys, but like I had to picture this scene as like two girls arguing. Because I'm just being honest, right? I just want to be up front with you. If you ever watch two girls argue, maybe a little bit of thug in them, but not a lot of thug, right? But, but like when, when they argue, like you, you'll see like shaking the hips and shaking the head and like, like it'll be a uh-uh and it'll be uh-huh. And, and, and then like when the argument's over, one of them will go to turn around and stomp off. But it's like a little light that comes off. You know, all them wires they got, like this extra wire that just, boom, so they turn around. Oh, let me tell you one more thing. And that's what I, I swear that's what I picture, man. I know it's two dudes, but you need to understand where my head is at because I got a messed up head, right? So, so she turns around. He turns around. Sorry, there's a guy, right? So the prophet turned around and said, you might have didn't ask me to give you no advice, but I know that God is determined to destroy you because you didn't listen to me. Now the thug has come out. You know what I'm saying? Like straight up. Like, you might have not liked my advice. You might have not like what I had to say. Could you imagine that's how I ended the sermon today? You know what I'm saying? You don't like what I got to say? God going to destroy you. And just walk out. Mic drop. Boom. I'm out of here. Should have took my advice. I'm taking my wife to lunch because it's Mother's Day. Right? Could you imagine that? Well, the prophets back then was men, bro. I'm telling you, because who's he talking to? You can't miss the scene, all kidding aside. It ain't thug girl no more. What is it? He's talking to the king. You can't talk to the king like that. He will kill you. But do you see any fear in this dude? So why are we always afraid to speak for God? Am I right? He's got no fear, man. He straight up tells the king, you don't want to listen to me? You gone. Mm. It's like he... He might even had to say it. He might have just voiced it out with some acting going on, right? Like, you out. Bang, bang. Right? He had his clip full. It's a magazine. That was a stab at my brother-in-law. <laughs> Which so was all of last week. Anyway, let me go on. Verse 11. He cooked me pancakes this morning, so I got to get him, right? Second Kings 14, 11. Back to Kings. Back to Kings. Amaziah, saddest verse in the chapter, I think. Now, remember, it's that is verse in this chapter because Chronicles is where he worships others God. In this chapter, 
Amaziah, however, would not listen. So the king of Israel attacks him. Remember, even the king was. It's bad when your enemy's trying to give you good advice and you don't listen. Remember what the kid, what the king tell him? And I ain't worried about the thistle and the ox and all that crap. Okay, we don't talk like that. What did the king really tell him? What did he tell him? You better stay at your house. Hey, don't go home. You better not even come this direction. Remember what he said? Because if you do, <laughs> it's going to be bad for you. Right? But he don't listen. He would not listen. So Jehoash, the king of Israel, attacked. He and this king of Judah, they faced each other at this Beth, Beth Shemesh. And Judah, and you want to know what happened? He got his butt beat. He got his butt beat. The lesson, maybe the lesson is this. We should develop a listening heart. We hear, we listen, we obey, we get the results. 13, it said that Israel captured this king. This is crazy, man. Captured this king all because of his foolish attack now. He had lost his freedom. What I love is that God don't play by the numbers. You know what I'm saying? At least he's never said this way. If you don't like play by the numbers, you said God's not bound by the numbers because God is a number God. Sometimes that's why we have a book called numbers. Right. But he's not bound by numbers. He's not bound by them. meaning this. I don't know if you guys catch this, but when you read Chronicles and, and study this whole thing together, Amaziah's got the stronger army still. That's why he's confident enough to go fight him. This should be an easy win. You, you, you ever been a coach or on a team where you were supposed to have an easy win? And got your butt beat? Okay, have y'all been there? If you ain't been there, it doesn't relate, so I just need to find another one, right? Like, like if you've been there, that's the worst loss ever, and people hate you afterwards. Now, they, they sugarcoat it with words like, oh, it wasn't all your fault. What they mean was it was all your fault. <laughs> no, I'm serious. But but what happens here, here's what's gonna, his own people are going to turn against him now because he had the numbers he was supposed to win. Remember, he's mighty. And this little army... This is a little army when you study this thing. This little army coming to beat him. And the scripture actually says this in Chronicles 25, 20. It actually said, and it came from God that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they sought the gods of Edom. So you think, how did God's people lose? God spanked them. They lost on purpose. Right? That's what God's doing. Oh, man. But I thought he was a redemptive God. Yeah. Because you would think after getting a spanking, you would turn around and listen. No, but no, no, no right parent. There's some corrupt parents out there. No right parent punishes their children for the joy of punishing their children. We punish our children so that they grow when they're, they're raised right, right? Now, here's, here's what's crazy when you, when you check this thing out also. This is just a little free side note, right? Last week we had this unnamed hero and we said like unnamed guy gets written down and, and does great things. This week we got a named guy, Amaziah. Do you guys know what his name means? Strength of Jah. Or strength of Yah, which is the strength of what? Yeah, yeah, God. But in Second Chronicles twenty five eleven, it said that he strengthened himself, and this is why he lost. I don't care what you're named if you're not going to live up to it. You ever had that speech with your kids? I'd always hear people talking about my dad and his brothers playing ball. Oh, last name Purvis, you better do this and you better do that and you ought to do that. I think they were so good because they didn't have videos back then to show. You ever heard like a fish story? I'm just saying. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying, right? But but I've been dumb enough to pass that dumb old lineage on them. Now, my boys, I tell them all the time. Your last name's Purvis, boy. You better represent right. Right? 
Live up. What does that mean? Live up to your name. What if God had that speech with us? What if he looked back at the prophet? This is what I wish you would do this week. What if he looked back at the prophet? He said, why don't you live up to that prophet status? Why don't you tell the king? I will, God will destroy you if you don't listen. More people might start listening if we'd say it like that, maybe. I don't know. Right? When we choose not to listen and only hear, the results are bad. It goes further in verse 13. He went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Now you wonder, why is that one phrase so important in this? And that only shows that they lost the battle. But when you've lost the wall to your city, what does that mean for the next battle? It's going to be darn hard to fight it, right? You're weaker for the next battle. When you lose in your spiritual walk, when you lose one battle, you're weaker for the next battle. And when you lose that one, you're weaker for the next one. And weaker for the next one. And weaker for that. How many walls, how many areas of your walls of you has been being destroyed by battles you weren't even supposed to fight? But you got your little nose involved and the walls got knocked down. And then because of that, you were weaker for another battle and another battle and another battle. It goes on, right? This works for us too, man. Future attacks. Weaker position. It says this, that they took all the gold and all the silver. Verse 14, I think. Because of this tag. Amaziah, he's losing the treasure of the people of God. He's not just losing his own stuff. Maybe this is a big lesson I want us to get. Like when, you, when you're foolish enough to do stuff your way instead of heeding the advice of others, the consequences aren't just on you. His whole, his whole country, his whole people, his whole church. Right? It wasn't just a loss of his personal wealth. This says that they went into the treasuries of the king's house and then they went into the gold and the silver of the temples. They're taking everything. His consequences because of a battle he lost don't just hurt him. And when we lose, it's not just the consequences from that loss that hurt us. It's other people, too. Right. Maybe just a, a little lesson right there is that the price paid for this foolish attack against this thing is a warning to leaders to consider the decisions you make for your people. You think, well, I'm not a leader. Are you a parent? God's called you to lead. Are you a man? Whether you got a kid or not. So are you a man? Not are you a dad? Are you a man? When God's called you to lead. Are you an older spiritual person? I don't care how much older you are, because I can go get down to the nitty gritty little babies next door and tote them in here. You're older than somebody, right? So what does Paul tell the church when he writes them? He goes, those that are older and wiser in the faith should be ministering to those younger. So you're a leader. Or you don't know you're a leader because you haven't been claiming you're right and you haven't been following scripture and you haven't been doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's why it's taken us 37 years. Well, much longer than that. I've only been here that long on earth to finally get people leading Bible studies that should have been leading Bible studies for years. Am I right? Think about it. They formed, verse 19, they formed a conspiracy against him. It's bad when your own people start forming conspiracies against you because you got your little butt beat by somebody you wasn't supposed to fight, right? I think there's a verse, I can't remember if it's Chronicles or Kings to be honest, so I'll just let you look it up, but it, it talks about him living 15 years, but it don't list nothing about those 15 years. So it's like the writer is writing and he's like, oh yeah, then there was this 15 year period where he did nothing. You want a 15 year period where you do nothing? That sounds depressing to me, right? He was lifeless for that long. Verse 19, it says that he tried to, still in 19, he tried to escape his conspirators, but then it tells us this, that he was assassinated. Well, who else was assassinated by his own people? What started the whole chapter? His daddy. Huh? You live like your daddy, you die like your daddy. Maybe you should have lived like your great-great-granddaddy so you could have died like your great-great-granddaddy. Right? Don't be surprised if you get the same results of those that you've lived like. That works positive and negative. 
You know, oh, I wish I had the results of so-and-so. Wouldn't live like them. I wish I could do what they do. Then do what they do. You know what I'm saying? It ain't rocket science. You want to get what somebody got, you got to go where they go. You got to do what they do. I had another one, but I can't remember what it was. Verse 21. The people of Judah took Azariah, who was, Azariah, sorry, who was 16 years old at the time. They made him king of his father. I only point this out because it's going to come up later in the study. This is also King Uzziah. Just, just different name right there, right? He's going to be the greatest king of Judah after David. So just for you note takers, dot it down. We'll be back to him later. Greatest king of Judah next to David comes to the throne on verse 21. Last section, 23 through 27. The reign of Jeroboam, the second. No better than the first. Summary of them. Verse 24. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He's a wicked king, man. He's continuing down the idolatry. He's following all this stuff. And during his reign, here's what I want to point out, timeline. As we get to the end of Kings, timeline's going to be really, well, really important if you care. Maybe if you don't care, it's not. But, but this guy right here, these are the prophets of Jonah and Amos. So if you're a Bible studier, when you read and you get to this part of Kings, you now know where Jonah and Amos is at. Timeline-wise, okay? So, so these guys are there. Verse 25 and 26, it says this. Talk about God's great mercy, right? It says that he restored the territory of Israel, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. This is God's great mercy and kindness. Because what is Israel at this time? Horrible. Disobedient, bad, evil, being led by evil people, right? And it's at this time that Jonah, it talks about, had a ministry among his people. So before Jonah was a foreign missionary to Nineveh, he was an at-home missionary to his own people. Now I'm going to come back to that because I think there's a really cool lesson there, right? I really do, I really do, right? But I want to save it for the end, which isn't far, I promise. Right? So, so we look at this and we don't get much at all about Jeroboam too. I mean, I... What is there? A couple verses, a couple sentences, and, and half of them aren't related. Here's what it actually says, 28, 29. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he fought, how he recovered for Israel, uh, Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the book of kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah's son became king in his place. What, what is, what's this writer doing? He don't tell us how he fought. He don't tell us how he recovered. All he tells us is what? If you want to read more about him, go find some other writings. That's awesome, right? <laughs> I think he's writing that. In, like, I think he's like this prophet. I think he's writing with boldness. I think he's. I think he's saying people who read this understand the point is not Jeroboam and his evilness. The point is the kindness, the grace, and the mercy of a redemptive God. Because even when they're in their darkest moment, the verses tell us what the God saw fit to come in and rescue them. So it tells me that these verses, they're, they're about what God did. Maybe you can say it this way. It's not about Jeroboam. It's, it's about what God did uh, for him. It's not about Jeroboam. It's about what God did in spite of him. In spite of his evilness, in spite of his, his mercy, the great mercy of God. Psalm 103, David wrote, talking about great, great granddaddy. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far that he's removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God knows where we came from. God knows what we deserve, and yet God is still merciful. 
I guess in order to see the extent of God's mercy, you've got to understand the extent of Israel's sin. Maybe that's why we get these chapters. Or, or better yet, because this is, this is history that you're supposed to be learning from. In order to see the extent of God's mercy, you need to see the extent of your own sin. So that you know how far you've gone, how far God's got to come. Jeroboam dies 752 B.C. He leaves behind a strong kingdom, historically speaking. So strong. In fact, this was kind of neat. Just got off on a tangent reading the other day. That they can literally pinpoint when the houses started getting built bigger. Like literally, they would have the, the houses from this king before him. And then when he comes on, you can see where they, they can timeline where houses had started being added to and built bigger. That's how successful and everything was. Yet we all know, what did we just read? They were spiritually rotten. So don't be mistaken when the next chapter and the chapter after comes and we hear that they couldn't withstand the pressures of the tide. Why? Because it's about the foundation we're built on. And not just how pretty the top is, right? Zechariah comes on at the end of this chapter. I just got to ask this. Here's a part I wanted to share about Jonah that I never thought about. Have you ever been blown away by God's grace and mercy? I'm serious. Like, pause for a minute and just think. I mean, blown away by God's grace and mercy. Most of you, if you show a hand, do it. If not, I don't care. Most of you, when I asked that, you thought of something where he blew you away personally with grace and mercy, right? Have you ever seen his grace and mercy on somebody else? Maybe somebody else. Careful. You have to be honest. Maybe so much grace and mercy on somebody else that didn't deserve it that you had to scratch your hand and wonder what in the world. Be honest. I'm dead serious. Here's what I really think. I've never tied this together before. But this being the same Jonah, which I know it is, right? Is that why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? Was Was he talking with God? And he said, God, you were so merciful and so grateful to my own people who were morons and you just let them slide. Now, I know some of y'all holy rollers like y'all just want grace and mercy for everybody and don't bother you. But some of us, we, we struggle sometimes, if we're honest, when those that don't deserve it, not that I deserve it, by the way, but it's easy to look at somebody else than yourself. Right. But we struggle sometimes when it's somebody that don't deserve it and they get it. So was Jonah so Hard-headed about going to Nineveh that he knew how awesome. He had been blown away by God's grace and mercy so much that he said, ah, I don't want to go preach soon because if I go preach to them, you, you're going to save them all. How awesome of an attitude is that, though? Like, yeah, bad heart, bad idea. But he understood enough of God's loving kindness, grace, and mercy that he knew what God would do. Is that the kind of attitude you got with the Lord? Is that the kind of understanding you got with him, right? That the same God wants to do that through you if you would go preach to other people who even you don't think deserve it? Who even you think would be a waste of breath? Right? Another great start in the chapter. Another wasted potential. How we listen has the power to affect what we get. Stop changing the standards. Maybe, maybe you should ask two more questions while you're thinking before they come up and say, are you who hears and acts on what God says? Are you still counting the numbers of what you got? What's your, what's your trust and faith really in? Right? Look, look at, uh, look at Romans 2.13. We'll wrap this thing up. Romans 2.13. Paul's right in the early church. And here's what he tells. This is some bold speaking right here too, man. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God. Some of y'all thought y'all was righteous just because y'all come up in church this morning and heard something. Don't tell me you didn't. I know it was on some of your minds. It was a checklist. You thought you could get it done today. You attended church. 
Some of y'all even came just because it was Mama's Day and you needed to sit by your mama and you thought you did something good, right? But here's what it says. For the hearers of the law are not righteous. But, now you love a good but, right? Comma, but, the doers of the law will be declared righteous. What's the difference? Some people hear. Some people listen. Some people obey. And then we get the results. You ain't happy with your results. Maybe God's not happy with your obeying. You're not happy with the obeying or he's not happy with the obeying. Maybe it's because you ain't been listening. Now, you did have to get here just to hear it. So I guess it was one step, right? There's there's this line in the song the ladies are about to sing. You know, we talk we talk about being cowardly people. And I think that I think that's what a lot of these guys were. They were coward. And, and if, if not them, then the prophet reminds us that we've become cowardly because we don't speak like they spoke. But there's cowardly people in a redemptive God. And there's a line in this song that the lady's about to sing. It, and it says this. It says that I, I'm not too dirty. For God to make me clean. I'm not too messed up. For God to use me for something awesome. Right. Maybe the whole point of coming this morning was so that you could come to terms with your history sucks, just like in Kings. And it's time today to let a redemptive God take away your cowardness. And trust in him and see what he can do and make you clean. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you for this chapter. God, we thank you for history, even when we don't like it. We thank you for the results, Lord God, because they're your results. And God, I didn't get to hit on it too hard, Lord. So I pray if it's vital that that you hit on it at the heart right now, Lord God. But some of the results weren't what the people wanted, but it was what you wanted. And I pray, Lord God, that we understand that. I pray that we're okay with that, Lord God. And I pray that because, only because, we surrender to your will above everything else. We trust in you above everything else. God, help us to be made bold. To quit lowering the standard and being afraid to try something great. Make us courageous enough, Lord God, to stand up for you and speak, no matter whose presence we're in. And maybe that's just looking in a mirror and speaking to ourselves sometimes. Lord, use your spirit to speak loud and clear now in your great name. Amen.